1: Today's episode of Think Again is sponsored by a product I genuinely love, and I cannot say that about a lot of products, honestly. It's the Great Courses Plus video learning service. There are hundreds of lectures by top professors on anything your nerdy heart desires to learn, from cooking to calculus. No tests, no expectations. Watch whenever and wherever you like. For example, Your Deceptive Mind, a brilliant, comprehensive course that looks at the ways that we're bad at thinking, all the many ways, in case you hadn't already figured them out from Facebook. And now, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Your Deceptive Mind, which is a $215 value, for free when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com think. Start watching today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com think. We're also sponsored today by Me Undies. They make stylish, insanely comfortable underwear out of a material called Model, which is twice as soft as cotton. It is. I have not felt so good about underwear since I was eight and got a set of Superman underoos. Shipping is free in the US and Canada, and you can save up to $8 per pair with the Undies subscription plan. So you can get the subscription or a single pair, Get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com forward slash think. That's MeUndies.com forward slash think for 20% off your first order. MeUndies.com forward slash think. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think Podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we leave our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas that we didn't come here prepared to discuss. Today I'm very excited to be sitting here with comedian, unlicensed psychiatrist, and Smith's cover artist, Chris Gethard, who started out in improv with Upright Citizens Brigade here in New York City. He's acted on Broad City, Louie, Inside, Amy Schumer, and other funny TV shows, but he's best known, maybe, as the host of The Chris Gethard Show, which started out on stage, then local cable access TV, and is now in its second season on Fusion. It's a mostly improvised talk show where anything can happen, but not in a nasty Jerry Springer kind of way. Welcome to Think Again, Chris.
2: Thank you. Thanks for calling me an unlicensed psychiatrist.
1: Well, that's because I've been listening to yeah. and loving your podcast. Thank you. Which is uh, called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. Is that yes, right? Correct. Yeah. So I'll briefly tell people about this, like, people call in and whoever gets on the line, Chris talks to them for an hour, I don't want to say has to, although yeah. you're not allowed to leave yeah, the line. Yeah, I won't
2: hang up. I can't hang up. That's yeah. the only rule.
1: <laughs> yeah, and what results are some pretty, like, deep and interesting conversations.
2: Yeah, people tend to get heavy, but it's funny because I've read, like, it's in the early days of the podcast and it's been going, like, you know, it's weird, like, in the first month of doing a thing, you kind of want some time to feel it out. and hear how people react, and then it was featured on This American Life, which was very nice, but also meant there was like this, like there was no time, there's no time to like workshop things at that point, like you're in it, and that is the criticism I get, is uh, I've seen online people saying like, this is like, this guy can't just be talking to mental Ill people, mentally ill people about their illness, it's, he's not a therapist, and I'm like, whenever well, they're calling me,
1: yeah. And I'm not
2: I'm not seeking it out. I'm not hoping that people will pour their hearts out about dark stuff. But Yeah,
1: no, I mean I say that, you know, that I, I'm joking when I say unlicensed psychiatrist, but But that is the vibe. But you're good at it. Like, I mean you you know Thanks. yeah, I mean you're that is to say you're extremely sensitive, like humble and like listening to the people, really taking them in, you know. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. And you know. I've been
2: through a lot of therapy myself. <laughs> right. So I think maybe I'm acquainted with the rhythms of it a little bit too much, and it's showing up on the podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. I guess I wanted to talk to you, before we get into the heart of the show, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about authenticity. Because like on your talk show, you deliberately, on the Chris Gethard show, you deliberately subvert like all the tropes of talk shows. At one point, you took everyone out of the studio and put them on buses yeah, and went somewhere yeah. else leaving, I think, Ira Glass to like be the watchman, which yeah, was he, pretty awesome. Yeah, he
2: kept our studio safe while we were gone. Yeah, that was really
1: <laughs> nice of Ira Glass. It was, uh, it was. You know, world-famous host of This American Life. But I guess I wanted to talk, you know, I want to talk to you about authenticity, because you've written, you wrote like a, a memoir which, uh, or a, sort of a memoir stories from your life that is both funny but also very serious you've written back to fans who have written to you with very serious personal yes, concerns yes. and you seem to be i mean i don't want to say trying to be authentic cuz i guess like being authentic means just being yourself but comedy on the other hand seems kind of artificial to me like yeah, constructed it, and yeah yeah it's like relies on yeah it's constructed and you have a persona and all that stuff yeah and yes, you and this obligation to make people laugh all yeah, the time you yeah. know so how did those two things go together for you? If I mean, that's a huge freaking question. but It
2: you know. is, no, but it's a really interesting one. And I think for me, it was, I think, probably two things that I can think of is, one, I grew up, I think the entertainment I loved always felt very honest. Like, those are the things that I look back that I was really influenced by. Like, Letterman is someone who I'm really pretty obsessive about. And I always felt like, he seemed like the most honest talk show host. Like you got the sense that when he was cranky, it wasn't a put on. Like a lot of times, he wasn't even likable, you know. And, and uh, it felt very honest. And things like like growing up in North Jersey, like Howard Stern was always on when I was a kid. You couldn't escape Howard Stern. And right. I don't agree with everything Howard Stern has done in his life, but you can't argue that it's a very authentic show. That when they they get in fights on right. there, those are real fights. You can feel it bleed through. Those are always the most interesting stuff to me. And also even things you wouldn't think of like. I was a really obsessive pro wrestling fan as a kid, okay. which is completely fake. It's, by <laughs> right. definition, inauthentic. But I, I look back at it and I realize, I think I was really influenced by the idea that those crowds are having incredibly authentic experiences. It's like very intentionally fake stuff that gets very real reactions when it's going well. And Andy Kaufman is another one. He was probably the comedian I was most obsessed with growing up. Right. Again, like everything he did was so fake, like notoriously fake and, and he did hoaxes and he'd play characters and deny he was playing the characters but the reactions of the crowd were as authentic as it got and then also the music I loved I was going to tons of punk rock shows as a kid and everything just in that culture is all about authenticity I think people really especially back when I was a kid in like the 90s it was like if you were inauthentic there'd be witch hunts you know like <laughs> look at like the band Jawbreaker if you're familiar with them yeah. like, as soon as they signed to a major label fans would go to their shows and actually turn their backs on them to make some sort of point about how they'd sold out and I'm glad people aren't as harsh as that these <laughs> days but I think it was just always a priority for me and it always felt like the art I loved had that quality so it was worth emulating and then I think came out of the UCB theater at a time where that it was really becoming a place where there were like mounting waves of success coming out of it. Just all these people around me were getting these high-profile jobs. Right,
1: that's Upright Citizens Brigade yes. just for the audience if yes. they don't know. Yes. Which
2: is like sort of, has come in the world of comedy, has become kind of an institution for improv and sketch. And a lot of people you've seen on TV, like a ton of people in the past 10 years who show up in movies and on TV have their roots at UCB. And yep. being in that environment was really great and like very challenging and sort of, you know, you have to work hard to keep up and be good. and. I always had a great reputation at that theater and the mainstream success just kind of never found me. And then when it did, it wasn't a good fit. It didn't go well. It was kind of this really huge wake up call for me that was a reminder of like all the things I've ever loved have always felt kind of smaller and more accessible and more personal.
1: Why was it not a good fit? If you don't mind my asking. Well, anywhere? I got
2: cast in a sitcom in 2010, uh-huh. and it was produced by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, yep. and the co-stars were Chris Parnell and Horatio Sands, and I was I was cast as the lead, and it, we had 10 episodes, and it it bombed, you know, and things bombed, and I'm not hung up on that. I'm not like right. sitting around thinking about it every day, but it was like such an eye opening thing for my whole career because I realized like when it bombed, I didn't really care, it didn't hurt that much. Right. But I also realized, like, you know, I'd been chasing this traditional definition of success for years. That felt like coming out of UCB. People are getting SNL, people are getting sitcom jobs. That's what you want. You want one of these big, high profile things. And then I got one, and not only did it not really hurt when it failed, but it didn't really make me all that happy when I was in it. Like, I was like, oh, this, this is not my thing. Like, I didn't, I didn't care either way. Right, That's not right, a good right. sign. And it made me, I kind of walked away and felt like, man, like, Getting that and having it not work out was this huge blessing because I kind of felt like I got to peek behind the curtain this thing I'd been chasing and I was like, oh, I should stop chasing that because I don't really want it." it. Didn't really have much of an emotional effect on me. Yeah. Either one way or the other. I should find the things that will. And those projects became things like the public access show, which felt like the most personal thing I cared. I was losing money on it, but I cared so much. And I started finding that the people who were finding it and enjoying it cared so much. Financially, it was a much riskier option and a much less safe option. But right. creatively, I would not trade one for the other. There was no way.
1: So should we uh, move on to the second part where we watch the surprise videos? Yeah, whatever. I have not seen the surprise videos. You I, haven't either. No, they are chosen by our producers. They could be on Great. any subject and okay. featuring any person from the history of uh, Big things. So. Awesome. This one is by Maria Konnikova, and the title is A Con Artist Sold the Eiffel Tower Twice by Listening, Not Selling. We will get to that surprise clip in just a second, but first, do you love learning things just to learn them? I think you do. Are you one of those people who is always carrying a book that other people are like, is that for a class? I bet you are. Then I want to recommend The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming video learning service with hundreds of lectures on everything from astrophysics to British literature. Anything you could want to learn. No grades, no tests, just learning for the sake of learning, whenever and wherever you like. For me, that's the gym, where I am otherwise completely bored to death. The Great Courses Plus has made me actually look forward to going to the gym. One particularly great course is The Deceptive Mind, taught by Dr. Steven Novella. It's on cognitive biases and all the many fascinating ways our minds deceive us. I think it's especially useful and interesting at a moment when information and disinformation are coming at us from so many different directions and the lines between fact and opinion can get so blurry. And now, The Great Courses Plus is offering Think Again listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Your Deceptive Mind, a $215 value, for free when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com think. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. And now, let's get back to think again.
3: One of the things that con artists do incredibly well is actually read other people. So psychics, um, psychics are kind of the ultimate at this. They can read all of the cues that you're throwing off without realizing you're throwing them off. And so they seem psychic to you, even though you're telling them everything. You're giving them everything that they need to go on. And the truth is, most of us don't do that. Most of us really do not listen to other people. Victor Lustig, who's one of the most famous con artists of the 20th century, his nickname was Count Lustig, and he sold the Eiffel Tower two times for scrap metal, he said. He wrote something called The Ten Commandments of, of the Con Artist. And one of the commandments is, a con artist isn't a good talker. A con artist is a good listener. And I think that that tells you everything that you need to know. Con artists are people who actually listen. So being a good listener, people can tell when you're listening. And when they can tell that someone is really listening, they start talking. And all of a sudden, you're telling things about yourself that you never thought you were going to be telling.
1: I associate listening well with empathy. Yeah. So the idea that you could be a really great listener and then use that primarily to manipulate people and steal their stuff feels counterintuitive to me.
2: Well, I think that's what... like. One of the things I'm always fascinated by, do you know that the magic community has been at war for decades with like psychics and people along these lines? Because that's their whole point, is you're using these techniques that should be used to embrace kind of humanity and you're using them for personal gain and negative reasons, and you're leaving people's feelings in the dust. And it kind of speaks to that. It's like the inverse of empathy. Yeah. That type of manipulation. It was also, it was interesting for me to hear it because it makes me realize like, oh, comedians, are, I wouldn't say con artists, but many of the things she was describing about con artists I think really apply. Especially like with stand-ups, I feel like stand-ups, the whole thing you think you're experiencing is that person stands up there and talks, but I think the best stand-ups are actually listening the whole time, engaging the crowd, and sort of able to see where the tides of that night are taking the crowd and what they're reacting to in like the smallest, most subtle ways, and then they can lean into that. And, And I think a lot of performance is probably rooted in that idea of listening, even when it appears, at least in comedy, that it's all about I talk, you listen. And it has a little bit of a sleight of hand to it, I think, when people are their best at it. Louis C.K. is obviously, I think, right now, regarded as the best stand-up, and I would agree with that. And a lot of times when you think about his bits, it's like, oh, you're laughing so hard at him, like, talking about how he wants to kill his own children, you know? And it's <laughs> right. like, if someone told you, hey, at this show tonight, you're gonna pay for a couple drinks, and buy a ticket and laugh about the idea of uh, a father murdering his children, you'd be like, no, that's horrible. But he gets you there, and it's through trickery, and it's such a masterful thing to say, I'm going to say this thing that on the surface is horrible, and you are going to buy in completely and enjoy yourself. To me, that has so many elements of what Maria was just talking about, because it's a lot, of, it's all about manipulation.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
2: yeah. I really identified with what she was saying <laughs> in a scary way, knowing she was talking about criminal, criminal elements.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I do remember David Mamet at one point in an essay saying that, like, if he had not gone into playwriting, he, he would have gone into crime. Like, he yeah. was, yeah. That.
2: And I once read, I remember when I was starting out as a comedian and an actor, I remember reading a quote of his that I think does relate to that philosophy. Where I remember he was one of his major tips or, or instructions on playwriting is, like, if it's not right here and if it's not right now, who cares? Like, if you're talking about a character who's not on screen, it doesn't matter. You're wasting everyone's time. Okay. And I think a lot of that is about emotional impact. It's funny because in improv, when I teach improv, you always have to encourage people. You need to listen harder. You need to listen harder. And what I found was more and more, the more years I did it saying like, well, I'm telling you to listen harder, but it's actually a misnomer. Because what I really need is not just listen, like hear the words and process the words and intellectually understand them. It's listen and understand that this person is trying to portray somebody who's struggling or someone who's angry or someone who's happy or sad, whatever it is, you need to just be, and it's not just listening, but almost like intuiting and absorbing what they're giving you. And if you can do that in the moment, it will make a crowd totally engaged and want to watch it. So Mamet, I think, is someone who has sort of notoriously pushed this idea of like, make it present, make it here and now, and make it something that an audience can feel like they are living in the middle of. They don't need to try to imagine what's gonna happen later or what happened before, they can watch something happen now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's something that I think about if we can get meta for a second in this act of interviewing and talking yeah. to people, right? Because here we are recording, you know, I really want to listen to what you're saying. And at the same time, there's the little voice in the back of my head going, oh, I better ask something interesting right. or I better keep it and- keep it going. Yeah, whatever. And just trying to keep those things balanced. You know, yeah. I wonder how that works for you like in improv because there is this pressure to be funny and you wanna be funny, right? Yeah, you'd like
2: to be. So, Um, I mean,
1: like when you're sitting there trying to listen to the other person, you don't wanna just go to like flatline land. Yeah,
2: for sure. I think one of the things that, as as I got more confident in my improv and as I did it for many years, one thing that I started to realize was that when I was at my best, I had no thoughts about what would be happening, even 30 seconds in the future. Right. It was really just about as much as I could Reacting and getting my laughs off reactions and not actions because actions you have to plan Reactions by definition you can't plan right It's interesting like I always feel like improv when it's at its best is Not at all about planning what you're about to say It's kind of more about memorizing what you are saying as you say it like if you can kind of remember every element of the show and then these things start to loop around and you start to call back to things that the audience saw before and you can really kind of blindside them. They don't see this one, this connection from this scene to that scene coming.
1: Because like a narrative is building and characters are building and whatever, if, if you hold on to that. But
2: improv, I really believe, like I come from a school of thought that when you say narrative, it's actually kind of like, well, plot is the enemy because plot is something you need to plan and execute. Whereas if you can just make it about all the reactions here and now, and things can unfold, that narrative will take care of itself, and the audience will get to decide, you know, from point A to point B, what was the arc of this scene. Okay. You know, a playwright needs to write and structure it and do that, and I think improv is less that, and should more have the feeling that you're like watching your neighbors through their window, gotcha. and you get to just decide. Oh, this husband and this wife aren't having a great time lately. And, But it's not, they're not explaining the story to you. You kind of have to piece it together. And I think improv, when it's at its best, has that sort of like the audience has almost like a voyeur quality.
1: Our minds are really good. I mean, I've studied some psychology, like our brains are very good at filling in the blanks and making sense where there isn't sense. I you think know? so. Yeah, when and people so. When, you know, people have brain injuries, I know Oliver Sacks has written a lot about this, you know, they'll confabulate. They just like, you ask them a question and it's like the part of the brain where the memory is missing and they'll just make some stuff up, you know, to make sense. And I think too, like,
2: being a New Yorker, it's really interesting to talk about this out loud too, because I think New Yorkers, we're all on top of each other all the time, but we all know, like, you can see someone crying on the subway and kind of like, watch out of the corner of your eye, and you don't know why they're crying, you don't know where they're coming from (laughs) that made them cry, you don't know where they're heading to, that they have to deal with the fact that they've been crying. It's fascinating. It's totally fascinating to just see a slice of life unfold in front of you with no context and with no explanation. And you get to wonder forever and you get to try to fill in the blanks, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. There's times where you'll, like, you'll leave a bar in New York City and be walking down some block and there's no one else on the block and then there's just uh, two guys screaming at each other and it's like, you can tell like, oh, these guys are friends and something fell apart and I can listen to this. I remember, I've said things like that to my friends and I wonder what happened and it, it's fascinating And with improv in particular, I think what you're trying to capture is that feeling of like, this is engaging and a crowd can understand and lock into it. And you don't, when that's going at its best, you don't need to lay out exposition or context, which gives you a lot more freedom to just fuck around on stage.
1: (laughs) Cool, shall we go on to the second one, see what we got? Sure. Let's see, Baratunde Thurston. Oh, I know Baratunde. Yeah, Yeah. he was on this show a long time ago too. That's Um, awesome, yeah, he's a real good dude information overabundance. This is from Ooh. a couple years ago. Before we get to the surprise clip, let me just take a brief, no pun intended, pause here to ask you, do you wear underwear? I think the answer is probably yes. Is it comfortable and stylish? Maybe, probably, but probably not anywhere near as comfortable and stylish as it would be if it were made by me undies. Their underwear is made from Model, a sustainably sourced fabric that's twice as soft as cotton. I should know. I'm wearing them. Too much information? Sorry about that. But they're awesome. You literally don't even notice that they're there. And the ones that I have are in a snazzy floral pattern that has totally upped my underwear game. Seriously. Go to MeUndies.com, take a look. Shipping is free in the US and Canada, and you can save up to $8 a pair with the Undies subscription plan. You can get the subscription or just a single pair. You get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com forward slash think. That's MeUndies.com forward slash think for 20% off your first order. And now let's get back to the conversation and the rest of Think Again.
0: One of the beautiful things about the internet is that everybody has a voice. One of the terrible things about the internet is that everybody has a voice. And so sifting through that and finding a way to determine the signal out of all that noise is one of the challenges of our time. It's, it's part of the, the hallmark of shifting from an economy and an ecology of scarcity to one of abundance. There are way too many things. Just like there's too many cereal choices in the grocery store, there's too many videos on YouTube to watch them all. And if you're someone who's pushing stuff out there, you don't have to read all the comments either. In fact, I advise you heavily not to read all the comments. Community, is important in a sea of dramatic change where up is down and this is the situation today and that's the situation tomorrow people cling to names and brands and places that they trust and trust is important in this world and so if you're in the business of producing content and information and trying to grab people's attention the mere act of producing it is not special oh great you're a photographer you take pictures So do I, so does everybody with a camera phone. That's no longer special. Building community around that is a little more special because you're not special just because you can make things. Everybody can make things. So what else can you build beyond the raw thing, beyond the bits that you publish?
2: There's a lot to think about there. It's also so interesting because I feel like Sunday is, uh, I first knew him as a stand-up comedian, and he's become such a philosopher and thinker and all these other things, and it's very cool to see. But it's also, it's so interesting to realize like his background is very similar to my background and my present, and uh, how much I agree with so much of what he's saying. And as far as that consumption goes, it's really interesting, as my career gains the small amount of momentum that it has, there's this very fine balance where it's like, well, I'm becoming known as someone who is accessible and authentic, but any measure of momentum or size automatically makes me less accessible mm-hmm. and authentic, which is such a balancing act. So like you said, like for me, the big right. one is that when I was like really starting to catch, when I was really starting to be able to, in a succinct way, put out into the world who I was and when people were starting to respond to it, I was able to answer every email. I remember when you used to request a ticket to my show, I would answer the ticket. <laughs> I would answer your email. I'd be like, yeah, here's the address. And I, and I would have people tell me later that's part of what hooked them into the show. Like I remember when the first time I started selling T-shirts related to the Chris Gethard show, yeah. um, you would get an envelope and my, it would just be my home address that was the return address. And like that felt like part of what people locked into. And now for me, as far as information consumption, as someone who makes things... Right. Part of what's heartbreaking is now I get emails and I get Facebook messages multiple times a day, every day, and I just can't answer them. I can't answer them. And I'm at a point where I still generally read them all, <laughs> um, but I can't. I just don't physically have the time to sit down and answer all of them anymore.
1: I, um, I, that I overload
2: don't... he's talking about is very real to me. I understand it.
1: I'm interrupting only because, so Cory Booker, the uh-huh. politician, yeah. was on this show. Oh, wow. And he... That's a get. <laughs> um, he's cool. And his whole thing is availability, right? He was He's worked in Newark for years. He answers tons of people on Twitter, yeah. et cetera. And you just wonder, once it scales up, like once you become the president, for example, like, you know, you can't be... Bob from the neighborhood necessarily anymore. Yeah. You've got suits around you and security and like, yeah. for you where you're at right now, like how do you deal with that? Are you just guilty all the time that you can't answer everything? I do did, you just kind of put that in a box? Like what? I
2: did feel bad for a long time. And it's interesting because so much of my audience, I've managed to build like this cult that's very supportive of me, but a lot of it relates to this thing that you referenced before, which was that someone wrote me this letter Yeah telling me he was feeling suicidal and it was anonymous. And I felt really like bound by honor to answer that. I felt like it wouldn't be, it would be inhumane to ignore that. But it was anonymous, it was sent to me on Tumblr and I just wrote a public response hoping this person would see it. And that sort of gave this separate layer to who I was, to my audience and to people that like, I'm not just a comedian, but I'm also someone that you can like lean on for support in a personal way. And that led to all these messages, this influx of people contacting me. To this day, it's been years since that went out, but all the time I get people reaching out. And there was a point where it was really like all-consuming for me and felt like this massive responsibility. And actually, my friend JD, who's like my closest creative collaborator, sat me down. And in a very gentle way, he was like, your job is to make people laugh. It's not to save everybody one by one. You can't do it. You right. can't do it it actually really segues so nicely into what Baratunde was saying about community. Because I feel like I would imagine someone like Cory Booker, I can't put words in his mouth, obviously, and he's a much smarter and more accomplished man than I am. But I kind of feel like what the next step becomes is you come to represent something to people, and those people start to find you. And then what gets really fascinating and touching is realizing those people actually also find each other. And that becomes something that is so huge and so fascinating to see, it's that I can't answer everybody anymore. I can't answer all the emails. I can't put my home address on the T-shirt orders anymore. It's, right, it would, I'd right. be handing out the location of my, my wife's bedroom to <laughs> thousands of people. Can't do that anymore. And there's a part of me that really waxes nostalgic for the days when it was, this intimate personal connection. But now what I can do is sort of monitor and see online Oh well the people who like that about me or who identify with that or feel like they need it, I've provided this forum where they can all find each other now. And then they become friends and I see them I see people start to interact, I see them start to find like we set up these forums online, we set up a chat room online, we set up a Facebook fan group online, or actually they set it up and I'm able to then monitor it and see them all hanging out and connecting virtually and in real life. I get to see it. It's very fun for me to see someone will go on a Facebook group about The Gethard Show, say like, hey, I'm coming from Detroit and I'm flying in and I'm, I'm seeing this show that I've been watching for years. Can anyone let me stay on their couch? And then I see six people go, yeah, of course, stay on my couch. And it's because they all like me. And I would imagine for someone like Cory Booker, there's like a totally different vibe there. But he is this person who I think has become known as very accessible, sort of a progressive crusader, someone who slept outside of housing projects in New Jersey to try to draw attention to that. And my guess is that people who look to him and say he's doing things the right way, I'd like to be a part of it, have much less access to him now that he's like a rising United States Senator. But I bet he set a tone and he set some methodologies into action that people want to embrace and that those people have a chance to find each other and create a movement, you know, and for me with comedy that's been referred to as a cult, certainly not a movement, but what I really like about being a cult figure in the comedy world is that there are certain people who are looking for something that feels outsider, or feels outside the mainstream, and just like I found punk rock and said, oh, these are the other people who don't want to just have stuff shoved down their throat, they want to make decisions about their entertainment, I feel like I love seeing um, people do that. So I know that's a very, very convoluted answer from our starting point.
1: No, I I I love that. I love that. Um, To me, communities like that are what the world needs more of. And where I get kind of like cynical and embittered is about how like corporate entities are all excited now about community online and therefore kind of come in and co-opt. Or if someone rises to a certain level of prominence, the community gets handed off to like people that can then extract value from it, you know, in other ways. Absolutely. So like I just think that, you know, to whatever extent people can grow and maintain authentic communities like that and then not sell them to somebody, I think that's really good.
2: And it's very interesting because it's weird like (laughs) with Late Night, I'm so obsessed with Late Night and I built my TV show on public access and I had a real chip on my shoulder because I was like, I always felt like Late Night shows, like I love them, I love them. But I, feel, I always felt like, why do they still have to wear a suit? Why do they still have to tell these topical <laughs> jokes? Now that The Daily Show exists, people go there for that stuff. Why do they do these bits that just repeat over and over again where you could tell they don't even feel like they like them? And I remember years ago feeling like we started on our show doing so many games, so many things where people played games, and they were we'd use the Internet, and I was like, well, this will make people feel like they're personally involved, and it means when we have guests, it'll feel like they're entering our world. And I think... That was stuff we were doing five or six years ago. And it's proved true. I think Fallon in particular has shown that mentality. I was like, right. And now as someone who's always trying to stay ahead of the curve because I'm not very successful or big, but what I can do is try to always be the most progressive and the smartest about it. What I'm starting to sense is that what people in the future will actually want is something that feels small. Something that doesn't feel like the whole world has access to it, or the whole world knows about it. I think people wanna feel, it's very, you know what's very interesting to me to think about a lot is especially with television, I think when we were growing up, there was still regional TV. There was right. still stuff that I only saw in New Jersey and other New Jersey people knew about it. There was this guy, Uncle Floyd, <laughs> and his show was like homemade. It was on like the UHF channels and it was like very, very rough around the edges. But people in New Jersey loved it because it felt like Uncle Floyd was our guy. I know my friend JD, who I mentioned, who's collaborative with me, he grew up outside of Chicago and he remembers Chicagogo, which is this like show where um, they just play like music and kids could dance on TV and people would show up and do it. And again, such a weird show, but it was theirs. And we had
1: uh, Captain 20, I'm, I'm from DC, like Channel 20 had this dude, Captain 20, who in, like, I've
2: never heard of. But I bet all, like, everyone you grew up with, I bet, loves Captain 20. Yeah,
1: he was, he was but he was a weird, anom- you know, odd bird, you know, yeah. like for sure, you know. And
2: people have fondness for that, but <laughs> one thing I really think of is the internet's made everything global. Yeah. People can find your work from anywhere in the world. Right. It's very interesting to me because I feel like what's going to start happening more and more is people are going to have this like regionalism or tribalism. Tribalism. That it's just you opt into it. It's not defined by where you live. It's defined by who you see yourself as. My guess is that what you'll see from people who are creators is you'll see more people making a modest living and less people making these massive global superstar livings because people don't I think young people in particular want to feel like they have something that's only theirs and is only shared amongst the people they identify with. That's why something like, I'm so fascinated by, is it pronounced Patreon?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm
2: so fascinated by that, because that to me, as soon as I saw that started to exist, I was like, yep, my, this has been my gut feeling, is that you'll start to be able to have this, where if you can get 400 people to give you $10 a month and you can pay your rent that way, yeah. those 400 people might just support you for your whole life because you're opting into being their person. I'm your guy, I'm your girl, I get who you are, and I'm willing to kind of be the point person for a small community. I feel like that's going to become a thing we see more and more of, and I'm really fascinated to see exactly how logistically that exists.
1: Yeah, I do hope that, that like is indeed the wave of the future and yeah. how things go overall, because yeah, so many things are coming into my mind. Amanda Palmer, um, yeah. you know, she's sort of the poster child for this Patreon uh, yeah. kind of efforts. You Even know, someone
2: I will say, it's weird because it's counterintuitive to what I just said, but I feel like Taylor Swift, who is, I am a 35-year-old man, <laughs> Taylor Swift's not my demographic, but from what I can sense, part of her being a global phenomenon is that actually many people, especially young ladies, are like, she gets it. She gets what my experience was. She's taken that so much further than a lot of people, but I feel like the real template that creators can take away from someone like that is, right, if you can be, if you can put on display what's unique about you and attract the people who say, that person represents my experience with the world, right. they might just support you. And with the public access show, I found that to be the case for me in a small way, and it was very, very empowering. I felt like when I found the small community that was willing to support me no matter what, it gave me so much freedom and breathing room where, like, I haven't been out to pilot season in LA and I'm, a, I'm an actor. I get my health insurance through the Screen Actors Guild. Right. I haven't auditioned for a pilot in five or six years. And it's because what I know I have is a few circles of, you know, like a very, very dedicated hundred or so people and then a few thousand people that are a little less dedicated and then these sort of like, Ripples out from my work where I know well this it, as long as this gang supports me I have the freedom to kind of sneak through the back door and right. not have to do it the traditional way And that's the most empowering thing as an artist
1: Chris Gutherd, thank you so much for being on my Please, show.
2: Thank you. I hope I didn't ramble too much.
1: You know, this was amazing This was a great conversation um, Yeah,
2: I mean I think hard about those two clips. We watched all day all day <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm Rolling them over in my mind because they were really
1: fascinating me too. Thanks so much for being here. Awesome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Gethard as much as I did. If you love this show and you want to keep it going, I urge you, I implore you to go rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen. The more positive ratings we get, the more people can find us, the more people can find us the longer we're gonna last, the more sustainable we'll be. The power is in your hands, listeners. If you like the show, let the people know. Also, people in or near NYC, come out. Come out wherever you are on May 21st at 5 p.m. to the Cake Shop and see Think Again live. It's our first live show. It's almost our one-year anniversary. It's part of MYC Podfest and our special guest is the amazing Miss Sarah Jones, a Tony and Obie award-winning shape-shifting actress and creator of the multi-character show Bridge and Tunnel. She's incredible. Look up MYC Podfest, Think again and you can find how to get tickets. It's only ten dollars. Next week, I'm joined by British rapper, poet, and now novelist Kate Tempest. See you then.